Greetings, my brothers and sisters. Grace to you and peace. In this message and in our next message, I would like to turn our attention to chapter 5 of Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. I've chosen this passage for three reasons. First of all, 2 Corinthians is a letter that tends to receive little attention compared to the other letters of Paul, and I think that that's unfortunate. Secondly, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is of particular interest to me because I'm currently writing a book on the intermediate state, the time between death and resurrection. And what Paul has to say in the first part of this chapter has some bearing on that topic. Third, and perhaps most importantly, the second part of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 answers some especially important questions regarding the gospel, questions that you may have asked yourself. For these reasons and more, I believe that our time in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 will be well spent. Although we call 2 Corinthians Paul's second letter to the believers at Corinth, in reality it's probably actually his fourth. It seems that after Paul had founded the church in Corinth during his second missionary journey, probably in A.D. 51 and 52, he returned to his home church at Antioch. He then set out on his third missionary journey in A.D. 53. During that journey, Paul spent more than two years at Ephesus. While he was there, he wrote what was actually his first letter to the Corinthians, a letter that we do not have in our Bibles and to which he refers in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. Sometime later, while he was still at Ephesus, he wrote the letter that we call 1 Corinthians to answer some questions from the converts at Corinth and to deal with problems involving factions, immorality, lawsuits, marriage, and idolatry. Paul then made a quick visit to Corinth. Apparently, things did not go well during that visit. He then wrote a third letter, one which we also do not have. Paul refers to that letter in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8, when he says, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it. Paul apparently received a reply to that letter from the Corinthians, and because he was not yet free to travel, he sent Titus to Corinth. Titus then returned to Paul, bringing a report of what was happening in Corinth. It was then that Paul finally wrote his fourth letter, the letter that we call 2 Corinthians, the letter that we will be considering in this message and in the next. If you find that sequence of events difficult to follow, don't feel bad. I had to review my own notes to reconstruct it in my memory. The important thing for us to keep in mind with regard to Paul's history with the Corinthians is that they had a difficult relationship. It began when Paul planted the church at Corinth. He loved the Corinthians like a father, and to a large extent they loved him back. However, after he founded the church and departed, some unnamed Jewish teachers came to Corinth. It's not entirely clear whether they were true followers of the Lord Jesus Christ or simply troublemakers. What is clear is that they claimed to be apostles of Jesus Christ, and they did everything that they could to undermine Paul's reputation among the Corinthians. One of Paul's purposes in writing 2 Corinthians was to defend his apostleship against these attacks. Another 
was to provide additional theological teaching. We will see both of these purposes at work in our study of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Listen now as I read our text, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven, if indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, so that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. In these 11 verses, Paul treats two main topics. The first is death and resurrection. The second is the judgment seat of Christ. As we will see, the two topics are closely linked. In order to fully understand Paul's discussion of death and resurrection, we need to back up a bit into the prior context in chapter 4. Here Paul addresses the issue of his own frailty and that of his assistant Timothy, a frailty that at first glance might appear to make them unsuitable for the work to which God had called them. Yet Paul points out that God has a definite purpose in the very frailty of the people whom he uses. Paul states that purpose clearly in verse 7 of chapter 4. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. In other words, God uses frail humans as his agents so that the credit for what they accomplish will rightly go to him. As the chapter unfolds, Paul speaks at length of his persecution and suffering that he and his evangelistic team had endured. Surprisingly, he doesn't find their experience discouraging. Instead, he concludes the chapter on a very positive note in verses 16 to 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. One of the unseen things to which Paul alludes here is the resurrection body to which every Christian can confidently look forward. His focus turns specifically to resurrection 
in the first eight verses of chapter 5. As we've seen in chapter 4, Paul spoke of his mortal body comparing it to a fragile pottery jar. Here in chapter 5, he compares it to a tent. Listen again to verse 1. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. A tent, of course, is a temporary dwelling. This is a great illustration of the temporary nature of our mortal bodies. Both Peter and John will later employ the same illustration in their writings. In John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 14, the Apostle John writes of Jesus, quote, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. The verb that John uses, the verb dwelt here, is skenao. It literally means to live in a tent. Twice in his second letter, the Apostle Paul speaks, I'm sorry, the Apostle Peter speaks of his mortal body as a tent. Here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul uses the contrast between a flimsy tent and a permanent building to illustrate the differences between our mortal bodies and our future resurrection bodies. Did you notice how Paul refers twice to groaning in this passage? Verse 2, For in this, that is in this tent, we groan, desiring to be clothed with our habitation from heaven. Verse 4, For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Paul is being brutally honest here. Life in the mortal body is often difficult and sometimes painful. But let's not be too negative. Certainly there are many simple joys and many godly pleasures that God provides to us during mortal life. The touch of a person we love, the beauty of nature, the taste of good food, the caress of a cool breeze on a hot day, the satisfying weariness that comes from the physical exertion of sports or of good old-fashioned hard work. These are all blessings from God. Nonetheless, age, illness, and infirmity all remind us that these bodies of ours are frail. Pain and suffering are the common lot of mankind, and in many cases those who seek to serve God with the most zeal are the ones who suffer most. Yet Paul is not being pessimistic. We might paraphrase his attitude something like this. Yes, my fellow workers and I have suffered much in serving Christ, but that makes our expectation of resurrection all the more alluring. Notice how Paul describes that wonderful event in verse 4. He says that in resurrection, mortality will be swallowed up by life. Here, Paul is flipping a biblical metaphor on its head. In the Bible, it is typically death that is pictured as the one that swallows up life. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram and their families died by being swallowed alive by the earth. In Psalm 141, verse 7, David pictures death as a ravenous mouth when he says, Our bones are scattered at the mouth of the grave. In Proverbs chapter 1, verse 12, 
the wicked described their plans to rob and murder the innocent, saying, Let us swallow them alive like Sheol and whole like those who go down into the pit. Yes, it's true. At the present time, death seems to be the great devourer of life. But for those who receive God's gift in the gospel, death's victory will be short. For them, it will be life, that is, blessed resurrection life that will swallow up death forever. Because of Christ, life will win over death. Moving on, Paul explains the basis of his confidence in his future resurrection. That basis is God's promise guaranteed by the indwelling Holy Spirit. Listen again to verses 5 to 8. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has also given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. This is largely a self-explanatory paragraph, and yet several ideas stand out that are worth mentioning. The first idea that strikes me is Paul's statement in verse 5. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God. I would have expected Paul to say, He who has prepared this very thing for us is God. But that is not what he says. Paul says that God has prepared us for resurrection. We will come back to this idea shortly. God's promise of resurrection leads to the second key idea, the guarantee of resurrection. Verse 5 tells us that God has given us the indwelling spirit as a guarantee of resurrection. Paul speaks twice of confidence in these verses. Paul doesn't have an I hope so expectation of resurrection. He has an I know so expectation. It was this confidence, this unshakable trust in God's promise that enabled him to continue his ministry in spite of much opposition, much hardship, much suffering, and many personal attacks and slanders that he endured. The last thing that calls for attention here is Paul's famous statement in verse 7, a statement that we often cite without reference to the context. For we walk by faith, not by sight. It is not wrong to take this statement as a general description of the Christian life, but in context, Paul has one particular idea in mind. The fact that as he and his fellow workers experienced physical hardship, and faced imminent death time and time again, it was God's certified promise of resurrection that enabled them to push forward. Let's go back now to the question of what Paul meant in verse 5 when he said that God has prepared us for resurrection. Let me trace the train of thought for you. First, God has promised us resurrection in his written word. Second, God has sealed and provided a down payment on that promise by giving us the indwelling Holy Spirit. Third, the Spirit's presence and power now during mortal life give us the basis for complete confidence of our future resurrection. Finally, that confidence, if we are wise enough to act on it, is designed by God to prepare each of us for resurrection and the crucial event that will follow it.
the judgment seat of Christ. It is upon this event that Paul focuses in verses 9 to 11. Listen as I read those verses to you again. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. Here, Paul is reminding us of a future evaluation that every believer will face, the judgment seat of Christ, also known by the Greek term bema. Paul wants us to understand the power of this future event as a motivator for life in the present. If we stop to think of the sequence of events that each of us will go through, the connection between verses 1 and 8 and verses 9 to 11 will become apparent. For the believer, the sequence will go like this. Number one, physical birth. Number two, spiritual birth. Number three, physical death. Number four, the intermediate state. Number five, resurrection. Resurrection will be followed by the judgment seat of Christ. As Paul notes in verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body, whether good or bad. Allow me to say just a bit about the judgment seat of Christ. Then we will turn our attention to the two verses that precede and follow, verses 9 and 11. The doctrine of a judgment of each believer's works is well established in Scripture. Paul speaks of it at length in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where he compares the evaluation of our works by Christ to a test of building materials by fire. He alludes to the judgment seat in 2 Timothy chapter 4 when he speaks of the crown of righteousness that awaits him and every believer who has looked forward with eagerness to Christ's return. In Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, an angel makes this prediction alluding to the outcome of the judgment seat of Christ. Quote, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. In the first chapter of his second letter, the Apostle Peter reminds us in verse 11, that if we serve God well during mortal life as believers, we will earn what he calls an abundant entrance into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If we were to gather together all of the evidence concerning the Bema from all of Scripture, the following facts would stand out. Number one, after resurrection, every believer will stand before Christ to have his deeds during his life as a believer evaluated. Number two, the greater the number and value of his godly deeds, the greater his reward will be. Number three, many deeds will be exposed as having no value at all. Number four, no matter how large or how small the individual believer's reward may be, each and every believer will be approved for eternal life because salvation is a gift from God that depends upon faith alone in Christ alone apart from works. 
With that overview of the facts of the Bema behind us, let's turn our attention to how Paul sandwiches the fact of the Bema between verses 9 and 11. These verses are, if you will, the carrot and the stick. Verse 9, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be pleasing to him. Allow me to paraphrase Paul's point with the injection of a few additional ideas from elsewhere in Scripture. In verse 9, Paul is saying something like this, I'm doing everything that I can by the power of the Spirit and the guidance of God's Word to be prepared for the Bema by putting my time, my effort, and my resources into deeds that have eternal value. My eagerness to please Christ when I stand before Him at the judgment seat draws me forward as I serve Him. That is the carrot. Then we have the stick in the first part of verse 11. This is how it reads in my Bible, the New King James Version. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. The New King James translates the word phabos as terror. However, most other English translations render this word as fear or reverence, and I agree that this fits the context better. Paul is not saying that he looks forward to the Bema with abject fear. However, he is saying that when the day comes when he must stand before Christ to be judged, he longs to see approval rather than disappointment on the face of his Savior. I'd like to conclude our exploration of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1-11 to with some additional observations concerning two matters that we've already touched upon. First, the intermediate state, and second, the judgment seat of Christ. What, if anything, does this passage contribute to our knowledge of the intermediate state? That is, to the time between the death of a believer and his or her resurrection. Some theologians believe that here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we get a hint of something that they call the intermediate body. Allow me to explain. In order to address the question of an intermediate body, we need first to talk about a common belief known as soul sleep. Some people think that when a believer dies, his soul or spirit goes into an unconscious state, much like sleep, so that the next event of which he will be aware will be his resurrection at the rapture. It's easy to see how one might come to this conclusion, because in the Bible, sleep is often used as a euphemism for physical death. For example, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 14, Paul speaks of dead Christians as those who sleep in Jesus. Even though this figure of speech might seem to support the concept of soul sleep, there is abundant evidence that it is, in fact, false. For one thing, we have Paul's statement regarding life and death in Philippians chapter 1, verse 23, where he says, For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Here Paul gives the distinct impression that at death he will go into the presence of Christ and that he will be awake and aware and able to enjoy Christ's presence. Perhaps the strongest proof against soul sleep is found in Revelation chapters 6 and 7. In Revelation 6, verses 9 to 11, we find the soul of tribulation martyrs in heaven crying out for justice. The text reads as follows, 
When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were, was completed. By the way, I've always found that response to be darkly humorous. Be patient, justice is coming, but first, more of your friends must die. In Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, we again see dead believers in heaven worshiping Christ. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Since in both of these passages we are seeing the immortal souls of dead believers who have not yet been resurrected, and since they are awake and interacting with God and with each other, it's clear that the doctrine of soul sleep cannot be true. Similarly, the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16 makes it clear that the unsaved dead are awake and conscious of the passage of time between death and their future resurrection. That is, in the period that we call the intermediate state. It's interesting that bells are ringing as we discuss this, isn't it? However, the very evidence that disproves soul sleep raises an interesting question. How could the martyrs in heaven in Revelation 6 be given white robes to wear if they don't have physical bodies? How can dead believers in Revelation chapter 7 sing or wave palm branches in heaven without physical bodies? How can the dead rich man in Luke 16 feel the heat of the flames of Hades without a physical body? If between death and resurrection the immortal souls and spirits of the dead are disembodied, how can they do these things? <clears throat> Two solutions to this problem, problem have been offered. One is simply to say that during the intermediate state, while people don't have physical bodies, their immaterial souls or human spirits nonetheless have a sense of having a human shape and human sensations, perhaps something like what we ourselves experience during a vivid dream. The other solution is the idea of what some theologians have called the intermediate or temporary body. This is where 2 Corinthians chapter 5 comes in. Listen again to verse 4. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Taken out of context, it might appear that Paul is saying that when we give up our mortal bodies, we immediately receive another body. Yet this cannot be the final resurrection body because we won't receive that body until the rapture. In other words, there must be some kind of temporary or intermediate body. Some theologians find this argument convincing, but 
Personally, I don't. One reason why is verse 8 right here in 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul says, We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. Another reason is Paul's account of his trip to heaven in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Note how he describes that verse, that, that trip in verse 12. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. Both of these verses suggest strongly that a human can be in the third heaven in the presence of Christ without having a physical body. If you're following me closely, you can probably see why the debate about an intermediate body continues. It continues because the evidence is not as clear as we might like it to be. The great majority of Bible scholars reject the concept of an intermediate body, and I agree with them. Yet there are a few who make the opposite conclusion and who offer biblical arguments to defend their position. In the end, it really doesn't matter very much. God will get us where he has promised to take us. The details are his problem, not ours. I find that a very comforting truth, whatever the details of the intermediate state may be. Let's turn our attention finally to a much more significant matter in today's text, the Bema or judgment seat of Christ. I see two admonitions that come to us clearly from Paul's words in verses 9 to 11. The first admonition is this, don't fear the Bema. The second is this, do fear the Bema. Now stay with me, I'm not suggesting that the word of God is self-contradictory, but rather that God's word is calling us to both trust in what he has promised and to work for what he has made possible. Let's consider each of these admonitions. First, don't fear the Bema. If you are a true born-again believer in Christ, you shouldn't fear the judgment seat of Christ. Why? Because we have this promise of God from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15, regarding the evaluation of our works at the Bema. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. If you have placed your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, nothing, no created thing outside of you, and not even your own laziness as a believer, can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. If you are God's child by grace through faith in Christ, you have God's unwavering promise of his eternal forgiveness. You have his guarantee that you will receive an eternal, immortal resurrection body. You have his word that you will enjoy a blessed eternity in the new heavens and new earth. If, but please don't ignore the if, if you have received Christ as your savior, the Bema will not determine your eternal destination. It will only determine your eternal reward. But that is only the first admonition that Paul urges upon us. The second is this, do fear the Bema. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you should look forward to the judgment seat of Christ with a healthy measure of fear and trembling. 
Let me explain why. First, at the Bema, Christ will review your entire life with particular attention to your life after the moment of your salvation. Nothing that you have done in public or in private will escape his scrutiny. If I read scripture correctly, when I stand before Christ at the Bema, everything will be examined. My good deeds, my worthless deeds, my thoughts, my motivations, and my sins will be exposed. The same will be true for you. I do not see a clear indication in scripture regarding whether anyone other than Christ and the particular individual being judged will be able to observe the review of that individual's deeds. But I do know this. When it is my turn to step up to the judgment seat of Christ, I doubt that it will be the reaction of others who may be onlooking that will concern me most. I will be standing naked and exposed before the eternal creator of the universe. I will be looking into the all-seeing eyes of the sinless Savior. Perhaps for the first time in my existence, I will begin to truly appreciate the breadth and the depth of my own sin and be able to catch just a glimpse of how much anguish my sins caused him as he bore them on the cross. As I look forward to the judgment seat of Christ, I have no illusions. I already have more than enough wasted time, foolish words, lost opportunities, and shameworthy sins on my record. As I read and ponder Paul's comments on the Bama, it isn't difficult to see why, even for him, one of the greatest of God's servants, the anticipation of the Bema aroused in him a godly fear. As I come to the end of our time together, I realize that everything in today's passage has been directed to born-again believers in Jesus Christ. Yet the possibility remains that you may not be such a person. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, you will not stand before the Bema. When your life ends, instead of going into the third heaven in the presence of Jesus Christ to await resurrection to a blessed eternity, you will instead go to a place that the Bible calls hell. But that will not be your final destination. Listen to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ from John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. In one sense, the destinies of the saved and the unsaved are parallel. Both will surely exit mortal life. Both will experience an intermediate state. Both will be resurrected. Both will stand before Christ in judgment. But the parallels are not exact. For the saved, the intermediate state will be a time of enjoying Christ's presence in heaven. For the unsaved, it will be a time of suffering in hell. For the saved, resurrection will be followed by judgment at the Bema for reward, leading to an eternity of blessed physical life in a new universe. For the unsaved, resurrection will be followed by judgment at the great white throne, with the only possible outcome 
being this, condemnation and consignment to an eternity away from God in the lake of fire. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, rejoice in his promise of eternal life. But beware the tendency to be lazy or careless in your service to your Savior. If you are not yet a believer in Jesus Christ, is there any good reason not to receive the gift of eternal life today and now? Will you pray with me? Father, in your word, we have been reminded of wonderful things, of things that should cause us to pause, and also of some very serious and very frightening realities. Thank you for those who are believers for the promise of resurrection. Thank you for your spirit who has sealed us and made that promise impossible to fail. Thank you for us who are believers that you've given us opportunity to earn reward by serving you during our mortal lives. Help us to take that opportunity seriously and to take every advantage of it. Thank you, Father, also for the reminder that for those who do not know Christ as Savior, nothing good awaits after death. Father, if there is any such person listening to my voice now, I ask that you would enable that person to look honestly at himself or herself and then to say, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I deserve condemnation. But I also know that you died on the cross to pay for my sins, that you were buried and that you rose from the dead. Right now, I confess my sins to you and I ask you to give me the gift of eternal life on the basis of what you have done. Father, receive me as your child. Give me the gift of eternal life as you have promised. Thank you for your promise. I rest in it now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.